And now, good morning. Hey, happy summer Northeast. And uh, hey, kids, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. And yeah, absolutely. And thank you for giving us a picture of what worship with joy and enthusiasm looks like. When you do not care what other people think about your joy in Jesus. That is a lesson that a lot of people in the room could handle learning a little bit more of. So thank you for that so much, kiddos. Hey, there are a lot of things in life that are really uncomfortable that we would really rather avoid. Like take paying your taxes, for one, right? Like that's, that's the one bill in the calendar year. Not that we love paying bills, but that one especially. We dread that bill more than any other. When somebody else has to pay their taxes, you know, fine for them to do that. We, we feel bad, right? But when we have to pay the taxes, like we are dragging our feet every step of the way, putting it off as long as possible. Or maybe that certain doctor's appointment, right? Especially when you reach a certain age and they have to check for certain things. Like there are certain things that are just really uncomfortable that you would rather avoid, and that's one of them. And you're pretty sure that if we could put a man on the moon, we could find another way to determine if we are healthy. And this is one of those things. Man, you have to do that your annual visit? Yeah, you should do that. You want to stay healthy. For me to do that on my annual visit, I don't know. I think biannual is just fine. Because there are just some things in life that are uncomfortable and we would rather avoid. But of all the things in life that are uncomfortable that we'd rather avoid, dealing with people that we disagree with has to be pretty far up on that list based on how eager we are to avoid those conversations. If you haven't been with us over the past several weeks, we've been unpacking the book of James. And this is where James takes us next. We follow where the scriptures go. James leads us right into this conversation on quarrels and fights with others. Over the past several weeks, James has been talking to us about our tongue. The, the reality is he's dealing with a church that lives one thing or says one thing and lives another. So he's been talking to us about the tongue. In, in chapter 3, he says it's this instrument in our bodies that we can't control. With one breath, we bless God, and with another, we curse him. And then he talks about wisdom, that we boast about having wisdom, but we do not pursue peace. And now he's going to kind of write out the full implication of that, that lack of desire to pursue peace by talking about fights and quarrels among you. And so parents, as you brace for your children being home for the summer, let's dive in and talk about what causes fights and quarrels among you. Grab your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 1, James 4 verse 1. If you don't have it in front of you, we'll put it on the screen so you can follow along. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, you, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James has been dealing with a dichotomy in the church. The dichotomy is this split. A dichotomy is a, is a split, a contrast between two things. It's a contrast between what they're saying they believe, but how they're living out their lives. And all through the book of James, he's highlighting this and calling them back to a true faith, a true pursuit of Jesus. Again, chapter 2, they favored the rich, but they neglected the poor. They blessed God with the same lips that they cursed others. And what we see in chapter 4 is this dichotomy spiritually ultimately leaves, leads to conflict relationally. The dichotomy spiritually, when we say one thing but don't live it out about Jesus, will lead to conflict relationally. What James is going to do in this text is, is attach these things that we think are just private decisions or private sins, and he's going to point outward to them saying, no, 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 it always comes out. It always ends up stirring the pot with someone, whether it's just your relationship with God or your relationship with others, this dichotomy spiritually will always lead to conflict relationally. So first, he's going to diagnose the problem. Then second, he's going to give us a solution. First, this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James doesn't waste any time diving in. He's not going to hold any punches, by the way, also talking about it. What he says, what causes, James James here is talking about fights and quarrels. Now, the word quarrels in the Greek literally means protracted argument. So he's not talking about a, a one-off disagreement with your, your bestie, your best friend, or your spouse. You're like, oh, we always work it out in the end, you know. After a day or two, he calms down. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about protracted argument, meaning an ongoing feud with someone that is unresolved because you're not pursuing it unresolved because you're not pursuing them and you're not pursuing the conversation. It's an ongoing feud with parties that are unwilling to resolve the issue. It's become such an uncomfortable issue, something you'd rather avoid so that you're not only avoiding the issue, you're actually avoiding the person, which then guarantees that the issue is going to continue because if you don't deal with the person, you'll never deal with the issue and the issue will persist and make you not want to deal with the person. And we're trapped in this crazy cycle. So he diagnoses what leads to this gridlock. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The, the, the thing behind the quarrels is your passions are at war within you. Now this, we were like, yeah, that's right. His heart's bad. His ears don't work. She doesn't listen. There's something in her heart, there's something in my child's heart, there's something in my boss's heart that, that they will not listen to me, they are stubborn, they are opposed to the truth. And I'm just trying to tell them the truth. Nothing wrong with that. 
Well, hold on. What James is going to highlight here is that so often when we want to make it about the other person, what does James do here? Look at the personal pronouns that James uses. When James is diagnosing the issue, he doesn't say, their passions are at war. He says, no, your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. James is not giving us the opportunity to point the finger and say, hey, if they would just wise up. No, he's saying the reason that there's ongoing feuds is because there's something in your heart that's avoiding the issue, that's struggling with them. There's passions and there's desires. You have to remember that James, far more often in his writing, is calling us to look into a mirror at ourselves rather than looking through a window at others. James is trying to get us to look in a mirror here. I want you to peel back the layer of your own heart, your own passions, your own desires. Because he knows in these moments our tendency is to, to blame others for the conflict rather than examine ourselves. He talks here about both physical passions and internal desires. The passions here often used in the scriptures to express uh, the body and our cravings. Desires here he associates with these internal things, the things that we covet and don't have, and it leads to these quarrels and these fights. To covet is literally jealous for what someone else has, jealous for what they possess, jealous for what God has given them, and it's a desire internally that we wish we possessed. They have a better house. They've made greater rank. They have the better job, the nicer car, the, the more behaved family, or just simply the better look or physique. These things that we desire lead us to have tension with one another, lead us to, to push back against certain people and not want to be party with them. You say things like, man, can you believe that person? They're just so snooty. Look at how they walk around. How, how, how do you know they're snooty? Well, just look at them. I mean, it's obvious. Look at how she walks through the elementary hallway. Like, look at how they, look at how they just drive into the parking lot. And like, you could tell, these people just think too much of themselves. In these moments when our hearts are critiquing others, James says, the reality is that's saying something more about you than it is them. There's something in them that perhaps you desire Something in them that, man, you wish your family drove into the parking lot like that. You, fish, you wish you walked down the hallway like that. You, you, you desire, and it leads to this coveting and these quarrels and this jealousy. And James says, instead of being driven by these desires and giving into them, we should instead be driven to God in prayer. All these things that we desire and we wrestle over, we should be taking to him in prayer you desire and do not have, so you murder, covet, can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, he says at the end of verse 2, because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. Instead of contending with others, James is pointing us to Jesus, to take our hearts to him, 
Well, I, I do go to God. I have asked him for these things. I've asked him to heal this relation. I've asked him to heal our marriage. I've asked him to fix what is wrong with this. And he hasn't answered. And that's why I struggle with God. That's why I don't believe in God. That's why I don't even believe people who believe in God. Because he hasn't shown up. It's all a farce. I think James would challenge which God it is we're talking about. Is it that you've asked God or you've asked the cosmic vending machine in the sky? And there's been something that you're looking for, for your life, that hasn't come out of the machine, and you're holding him responsible. James says you ask and don't receive because there's a motive behind it. That you would pursue something and spend it on your pleasures, he says. God's interest is greater than that. Again, James constantly reflecting on the teachings of Jesus. And one of the teachings of Jesus when the disciples came and said, hey, teach us to pray. Jesus said, this is how you pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you ask and you do not receive because you keep praying. Your kingdom come according to his will when he gives it to you. James, again, constantly pointing us back to the problem of our hearts. He diagnoses it then very bluntly in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with, a God, uh, friendship with the world is enmity with God? That when you align yourself with the things here, you'll just naturally be opposed to, to God there. Adulterous people, meaning we've given our hearts to the wrong thing. Instead of being devoted to Jesus in this relationship that we profess, we are actually living out a secret devotion to the world. We think that we're hiding it well, but James is diagnosing it. It's cropping up in your relationships. There's tension. There's tension. There's tension between you and others and tension between you and God. And it's a sign that you've actually become more of a friend with the world. And when your heart is driven by what you see here, it leads to conflict over things here, contending for things here, often contending with the one there. Simple warning in this, a heart that loves the world will always end up in conflict with God and in conflict with others. It's a simple warning, but don't, don't misunderstand it. The reality is the gospel is behind this warning. The theology of the scriptures is behind this warning. The gospel tells us that because our hearts have strayed, we have a fractured relationship with God, but not just a fractured relationship with God. In the garden, the book of Genesis, in the garden, God made Adam and Eve, and he placed them together in a perfect relationship with a perfect God. And he gave them one command, do not eat of this tree. But the text says that they saw it and they desired it, and then they took of it, they instantly ran opposite directions. Shame entered. They split, and they not only hid from each other, they tried to hide from God. The moral behind our desires and acting out on them, sin as we call it, is that it always leads to conflict with others and conflict with God. We think that we can hide these things, that we're only hurting ourselves. But James is pointing, hey, your heart comes out. And he calls us then to live like we declare our love for Jesus. Live it out. I met a guy many, many, many years ago. 
young guy who, as we began to talk, I realized this guy at, at his young, young age makes more money than in, in a year than I hope to have in my retirement when I, when I retire. Like, just an insane amount. And it's kind of the true American story where he, he had come from rags to now riches, and he pulled himself up by those you know, proverbial bootstraps, and he had made this incredible company, and every year was just at the top of his industry, but was still pining for more. And he asked to meet with me, and I had no idea why. And he pulls up in like my dream car, for one, right? Which instantly, I'm like sinning against James Ford. I'm coveting what he has. I'm like, thanks. And, and, and he sits down, and, and he is like the picture. Like whatever you're thinking in your mind, because we have these pictures, and these people seem to fit into them, right? The nice pressed shirt, the muscles in places where I clearly don't have muscles in those places, and just the beautiful family, very well known in the community. His face ends up in advertising and, and newsprint for the city, and he was miserable. And we sit, and we get to know each other a little bit, and he starts asking me questions, and he finally just levels with me, and he's like, man, I just got to level with you. Like, man, family life, like business has been, never been better but family life is just a mess and I don't know what to do. And we began talking it through. His marriage was in shambles. His kids didn't really want to have much to do with him because they never really saw him. But all of the remedies that we talked through were things he wasn't really interested in doing because what came first to him was this level that he still hadn't achieved. And I'm looking at him like, I don't know what you haven't achieved yet. And I don't know what you're aiming for, but if you don't stop, it's going to cost you everything. And it couldn't stop. And we know this to be true because we talk about it out in the world. I mean, Bill and Melinda Gase, all the money in the world, and that they couldn't be happy and they couldn't have love. And we see it in Hollywood. And we're like, yeah, that's why I'm not in Hollywood, because it just ruins your life. Like, yeah, that's why you're not in Hollywood. You're not in Hollywood because you chose not to ruin your life. That's what kept you from it, yes. But we, but we look at it, we're like, yeah, that, it'll kill you. It'll tear you up. All the fame, all the fortune, but you're going to end up a wreck. And we point it out and we look at it in the world and James is saying, but be careful because it's here too. It's not just something out there. It's something in here. Your passions, your desires, they war within you. And it leads you to covet and it leads you to quarrel. It leads you to judge these fleshly passions, these earthly desires. It is the problem that James diagnoses. But he doesn't just diagnose the problem. He gives us the solution, the remedy. Verse 6. But, in contrast to the, the way that we give ourselves to the world, but he, God, gives more grace. You yearn for things that you ought not to, but God gives you more grace. You're ashamed of the things that you did and you hope no one ever learns of them, but God gives you more grace. You shop to soothe your soul and make you feel better about what's not 
working, but God gives you more grace. And you pine for another dollar thinking that it will solve the next problem, but God gives more grace. Hear what James is saying about the heart of the Father to you. There isn't anything your Father cannot forgive. And there isn't anything that your Father can't fix and put back together. But he gives more grace, more grace than whatever has you hung up. How do we get this grace? You have to be humble. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a theme all throughout the scriptures. In fact, it's a direct quote that's used more than seven times in the scriptures from Psalm 138, Proverbs 3 and 29, Matthew 23, Luke 1, James 4 here, 1 Peter 5, over and over and over again. God gives grace, but he opposes the proud and gives that grace to those who are humble before him. Well, well, what does that humility look like? What do you have to do to be humble before God? He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Here's what it looks like. Remember, the book of James, he is so concerned with the actions of the church. He doesn't just want you to make a profession. He doesn't just want you to think the right things and have the right theology. He wants you to live it out in your life. And so when we're trapped with this question of what, is, what does it look like to be humble, to, to receive his grace, James is going to define the actions. Here's what it looks like in your life. First, he says, resist. Here's how you submit. Here's how you be humble. Resist the devil. Those things that you've been giving into, you've got to resist them. Resist and he will flee from you. See, the enemy is constantly serving up temptation on a silver platter to you. Each and every day, there's a new platter. Each and every day, there's an opportunity. James is saying, you've got to resist. The, the desires, the passions that wage war in you, resist them. You don't have to look at that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to drink to be happy or have fun you don't have to shop to soothe what's missing in your soul. Resist, and he will flee. See, many of us nod at these words. Oh, it's scripture. I guess it's true. But deep down in the back of our minds, we're like, no, it's not true because I've tried and he hasn't fled. And that's why James ties this to the next command. I don't believe it stands alone. The very next command is draw near to God. It's not about you resisting because the enemy will fear you. He doesn't fear you. He fears the power inside of you if you've placed your faith in Jesus. Jesus says, there's one in the world, but fear not. I am greater. I'm the overcomer. I am the victor. And Jesus then promises that upon my departure, he says this to his disciple, upon my departure, I'm going to give you a spirit, not just a comforter for when you fall and mess up, but the same power that rose him from the grave now lives in those who believe. He fears, he fears the sound of Jesus' name. That's why he says, for the devil to flee, you must also draw near to God, because the power is in him. 
You won't find power by just gutsing it out in the face of the temptation. You find that power by drawing near to the one who is powerful. You find that power by clinging to the one who delivers on his promises because you don't have the strength alone. And the only way to combat these earthly desires is by drawing closer to God and asking him for godly desires. Draw near to God. Let me just hang out on that for a brief second longer. If as a part of your regular routine with God, your rhythm with God in the morning, but really all throughout the day, your daily conversations with God, if you are not asking him for new desires, then you're missing something he wants to give you. Part of my routine daily with God is acknowledging the day ahead and asking him for the right desires. Asking him for the help to pursue the right things. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I think that's what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. Yearn for the things of the kingdom and ask him not just for the things of the kingdom for ourselves where, where we just want to amass more and more and more. No, we want them in our hearts. God, I want peace. I want joy. I want to be satisfied in you and so, God, if, if you don't satisfy me today, if you don't replace my broken desires with better kingdom desires, then I am going to seek to be satisfied in things that I ought not be satisfied in. Jesus, change my desires. It is a constant prayer. And when it becomes a constant prayer, then the moment that you're tempted and the moment that you're, you're tripping up in something, he helps you see it and he helps you pray through it. And you're like, no, 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 God, that's not what I want. I don't want to be going down this road. I don't want to be yelling at my kid right now. And it puts you on a path to reconcile far more quickly when we're seeking his desires. We have to resist, but equal with that. That's the defensive resist, but also play offense in this game and draw near to God. Next, he says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. It's an odd mixing of commands. Cleanse your hands. Oh, that sounds good. You sinners. Ow. Purify your hearts. Okay. You double-minded. Whoa. Be wretched and mourn and weep. James is just throttling us, and it feels a little bit like James is so stern. And what he wants for the church is for all of the Christians to be walking around with these dour, sour looks on our faces, because James knows if you're smiling, you're enjoying life. And if you're enjoying life, you're probably sinning. <laughs> that was kind of how the church I grew up in talked about it. Like, don't, don't, don't be happy out there. It's ugly. Be wretched. Mourn. I don't think that's what James is doing is we just walk around sour the Psalms, which we'll get into this summer in a series on the Psalms, constantly calling us back to take joy in the Lord. But what James is depicting here is repentance. It's not that we're permanently on display as sour people. He's depicting repentance. Confess your sins. It's not that you can cleanse your heart. It's not that you can purify your heart. God can. That's why you got to draw near to him. That's why he precedes those statements with draw near to God. And then you confess those sins and you turn from them. Hate them. Don't look forward to them. Instead, when you stumble into them, lament it. 
and say, God, this is not what I want. I'm sorry I went back to it. Change my heart. The problem for too many Christians is that we're too comfortable in our own sin. We don't mind how it smells. But Jesus died that he would pull us from it, not keep us entangled with it. The problem is we're too comfortable in the smell. I joke often that it's like middle school boys. No offense to middle school boys, but I have one. And man, when they're all together, and especially when they've had a sleepover, and you go into that room the morning after, it's like, whoa, how did you live through the night? And they're just sitting there, and they're, they're hanging out, and they're playing video games, and they've been sitting in it for hours, and they don't even know that someone has died in their sleeping bag. One of your friends is literally decaying, and you're all worried about Fortnite. And you walk in, and, and, and teachers, for those teachers in the room, congrats on being done with the school year, but we heard from you this year. Like, we get emails to this effect, like, remind your children to wear deodorant. Like, when you have to send that email, that's, that's a stark statement that we so often get comfortable in our own smell. And James is saying, spiritually, man, we've learned to tolerate our own sin. We've learned to be comfortable in it. And we best not be comfortable. That's why he's pushing on this. Be wretched and mourn over it. Grieve over it. It should grieve us that the thing that Jesus saved us from is something that we can so quickly turn back to. He's calling us to live different. He's calling us to live like we love Jesus. That's why he then ends coming back so quickly and strongly to his original theme of fights and quarrels. Verse 11 and 12, he ends with this statement, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. All the stuff in your hearts is coming out in your words. Don't do it. Because the one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. When you, when you speak evil against your brother and you don't think about it, you don't notice it, you don't mind it, in fact, you actually think they kind of deserve it. And what you're doing is actually you're becoming a judge of the law, saying, I know what God has said about speech, but they deserved it. I know what God says about loving other people, but they haven't met my husband. They haven't met my wife. I know what God says about forgiveness, but James says the minute we throw a but in there on any of God's commands and we give ourselves permission to get a pass on that command, what we're doing is not only judging someone else, we are judging the law. And when we judge the law, we actually put ourselves above the law. And when we put ourselves above the law, we have put ourselves above the one who wrote the law. We become more wise than God on this subject. And we give ourselves a pass when we pick and choose what parts of the law we follow. We've ultimately become an authority above God himself. James is pointing then another simple truth steeped in theology here though. Submission to God is the only thing that can bring peace with God and peace with others. Again, it's the gospel. 
And James is simply calling us to live out the gospel. And you know this. Your hearts are poor, but humble yourself. Seek him. Submit to him. Because it's the only thing that will rectify the broken relationship with God and the broken relationship with others. Submit yourselves to him. Surrender to him. Submission is the only way. But we resist it because it is the most uncomfortable thing to go and to make peace. It is the most uncomfortable thing to look in the mirror and realize our own faults and the error of our hearts. It's the most uncomfortable thing to posture ourselves before God and say, God, I'm broken and I need help. It just doesn't come naturally. We resist. Instead of having a humble heart, we give ourselves a pass. We say to ourselves, I know I, I shouldn't have said that to them, but, but they deserved it. I know God says to, to forgive, but they haven't earned it. They haven't apologized. I know God says to love your neighbor, but no one can love that guy. I know God says not to, to look at that or indulge in that, but, but who really knows? Who is it really hurting? And once again, James would say, no, the stuff in here will always come out. It will always bleed into relationships, not only your relationship with God, but it will find a way into your relationship with others. Submit, cleanse, draw near to him. Verse 11, humble yourselves and he will exalt you. Don't excuse your heart, submit it. And so what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway in this? For some of you, as you've been hearing this, I believe the Lord may be putting a name on your heart, a relationship on your heart, tension on your heart, things that aren't right. They've been uncomfortable to deal with, and so it's just been easier to avoid. God, I believe, is asking you today, would you submit that to me? Would you submit your heart to me in that? Would you submit your fears to me in that? Would you submit the, the hurt of that to me and let me carry you? Would you surrender to me because you cannot do it alone? Without God's help, we are not gonna move forward. Without God softening my heart, I'm gonna be too stubborn to take the first step. And without God softening their heart, we're never gonna get anywhere. We need God, and so we have to begin with surrender. And maybe there's a relationship that you know needs work. Maybe it was tense on the way over here. Would you be willing to surrender that? And not just surrender them, like, God, I'm giving them to you. Would you be willing to surrender your own heart and say, Lord, would you show me my part? Would you show me me? Would you show me what I'm holding on to that's making me stubborn? Would you surrender that? For some of you, there's, there's tension with God. Tension with God. He is not delivered. He has not been faithful to you. You have asked, you have sought, and he hasn't shown up. And you see him blessing other people, you're like, man, well, he can drive that. Then, Lord, certainly I can have something. I mean, their relationships look fine. God, why aren't you fixing mine? And maybe there's tension between you and God. And James would say it's the same step for you. Surrender 
surrender. God gives more grace. Do you not believe that the sovereign God of the universe knows what you need and can get you there? And do you understand that of all the things he knows you need, at the top of his list is that he wants to refine you. He wants to purify you. And he has a path to get you there and a promise that it is for your good and will lead to an ultimate joy that you can't fathom. Can you surrender and trust him with that journey? And once you've surrendered, well, then what? I'll give you one last thing. Having surrendered in the midst of these tense relationships, then just take the next right step. Would you be willing to surrender to God and then just take the next right step? See, what I find in my life is when there's tension between me and someone, when there's an argument at home or someone else, like maybe at the office who's clearly wrong, in the midst of that, I, I begin to, to make these scenarios up in my mind. You ever do that? I can't reach out because they're going to say this. Uh, they won't even take the phone call. They won't even respond to a text. And if I reach out, they're going to lash out. It will get worse. If I try to come and begin this conversation, it will go poorly. They will be punitive. They will drive me over in their car. You're like, what? They're going to drive you over in the car? Oh, yeah, it'll happen. Like, how did you even get there? Oh, trust me, you haven't seen them drive. And we come up with these crazy scenarios in our mind that are so detached from reality because we've built up this thing in our minds. And when we build those things up in our minds, we get so overwhelmed with all of the conversations that we've now created in our minds that we're not even prepared or able to take one simple step. You ever been there? We need to surrender all of that to him. And then we need to be willing to just take that one step that Jesus is asking us to take, to do that next right thing. But what if, what if, no, 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 no. Don't worry about the what ifs. God is the God of all of the what ifs. He is sovereign over all the scenarios. And if he, out of dust, could form you, then he certainly, out of the ashes of that relationship, can find a path forward. Would you trust him by just doing the next thing he's asking you to do? And the promise of scripture is that as we follow him in this, he will make our paths straight. He will give us then the next thing. Because God longs for you to walk that righteous path more than even you do. He will tell you what to do. But so often, we want to know how the story ends before we'll even crack the cover of the book. And God's saying, no, trust me. Surrender. Take that step. And trust me with what's next. Maybe for you, that means after you leave today's service, you owe somebody a phone call. You need to call your kid. You need to call your parent. You need to call that person that you've been struggling with. And you've convinced yourself that it wouldn't work even if you called. But maybe God is putting it on your heart. You need to make the call. Make the call. And trust him with what's next. Father God, we confess
that, Lord, left to our own desires and passions, Lord, we are stubborn. And we do get tied around all of these things here. And Lord, they impact not only our relationships here, but our view of you there in heaven. And Father, we surrender our hearts to you today. We need you, Father, to untangle this this web, the web of lies that we have believed, the web of things that we think we need to satisfy our soul when you alone know what is right and good and what will bring us ultimate joy. Father, we surrender. Would you birth in us new desires? And from that, God, birth in us a desire to walk with you, even through the hard relationships. Father, for my brothers and sisters today struggling in a marriage that just feels like it has reached its end, I pray that you would show them that you are the God of new beginnings. For those listening to this who feel like they're at a crossroads and they don't know what to do, I pray that you would show them that you are the God who makes the way in the desert places. Father, as we surrender our hearts to you, I pray that you would show us that next right step and then give us the courage and the desire to be obedient. And then, Father, speak all the more for steps two and three and 20. Lord, we want to follow you. Father, both for your glory, but we long also for good in our relationships. So we trust these things to you and we ask them in Jesus' name, amen. If you want to talk to someone about a decision you've made or let us know how God is moving through this series, visit nebc.ch contact. Be sure to stay connected with us throughout the week on social media or by subscribing to our weekly podcast. You can also stay up to date with the latest information about what's going on here at Northeast by subscribing to the Northeast News, our periodic newsletter that comes right to your inbox to keep you in the know. Thanks for listening to today's message, and we hope that you join us as we continue to make disciples on mission for Jesus Christ.